0: Right. well this morning we will be in first Corinthians chapter 15 and we looking only at verse 58 the last verse of the chapter this will be the uh, the last sermon in this series on the resurrection that would begin at Easter and so we will uh, we've been just diving into the topic of resurrection in first Corinthians 15 uh, often referred to as the uh, fifth testimony of the resurrection. You can find our passage on page 962, at the top of the page in the second column, in the Pew Bible. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, I'll pull pull it up on the screen as well. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Thus since the reading of God's holy word. So in this chapter, really in this letter, Paul is addressing people in the Corinthian church who are believers, who profess faith in Jesus Christ, but doubt the reality of a future resurrection. Now in our own time, I don't think you'll find believers in an evangelical church like our own uh, who would deny or doubt the reality of a bodily resurrection as much as simply kind of misunderstand the nature of the the uh, the resurrection that is to come, it uh, it many in the, I think in the church kind of will just view uh, or treat the future resurrection of the people of God as kind of a add-on bonus or kind of a just kind of mysterious perk that we just don't really know about, but it'll be great when it comes. The resurrection still remains unclear to many. Uh, as to what it is and what clear benefit we derive from it besides the obvious. But Paul in this chapter has been at pains to show us how the resurrection of Christ secures our own resurrection for the future. But we still ask, what does that mean for us today? Because we, are often, uh, we often will limit the benefit of the future resurrection of the people of God to, well, the future. That essentially that's it. Uh, now, the primary benefit we would get from that today would be comfort at the prospect of physical death. And that is no small comfort. That is a real and abiding comfort. But what I want you to see today, and what I hope to show you today is that the resurrection of the people of God that is to come has more in the way of application to our lives uh, than we generally give it credit for. And so first we're going to actually go through Paul's overall argument in chapter 15, and then we're going to jump into how we live in light of the resurrection that is to come. And so first, uh, we look basically through verses 1 through 57 of, uh, of, of 1 Corinthians 15, and really just kind of summarize this as the hope of resurrection. The hope of resurrection. And so the first 11 verses or so really are all about the truth of Christ's resurrection. Paul talks about the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus. This is critical for us to know. Jesus lived, He died, and He was raised again on the third day. The witnesses uh, to this, or many, from the disciples themselves to even 500 people at one time, even after Christ was ascended, Paul himself saw the risen Christ. And so this is not a metaphorical resurrection or a spiritual, that is an invisible resurrection. It was physical, historical, and miraculous. Then verses 12 to 34, Paul goes on to explain the significance of Christ's resurrection. As Paul indicates at the beginning of the chapter, the resurrection of Christ is a fundamental aspect of the gospel such that without the resurrection of Christ, we would not have a gospel at all. In fact, our faith itself would be empty and we would despair. The physical resurrection of Jesus is part and parcel of the gospel itself. Without a resurrection as a concept, then, Paul goes on to argue in this section, we have no salvation because that would mean Jesus, our Savior, would still be dead, that the preachers of grace would be liars, and we would thus stand condemned before God. But since Christ has been raised from the dead, he is the, he is the first part, the first fruits of the harvest of resurrection that will come when He returns and brings in the fullness of the kingdom of God. And so the resurrection of Christ forms the basis for the hope of the resurrection of the people of God that is to come. And this is where the argument of Paul turns from the resurrection of Christ to the hope of our resurrection as the church, as the people who have been bought by the blood of Christ. Now we need to understand that for the Jews when they before Jesus came on the scene, the Jews viewed resurrection as a as a one-time event that was coming in the future. When the Messiah would come. They believed the Messiah would come and there would be a general resurrection. Boom, right there. But in Jesus, we have revealed for us a mystery, as Paul says in this chapter. And that is that the resurrection comes not in one event, but in two stages. First, the Savior himself, the Messiah, is resurrected. And then at the end of the age, his people will be resurrected upon His return. This explains why Paul spends so much time on the truth and significance of Christ's resurrection. Since Christ's resurrection is real, then we are promised even more, we are guaranteed resurrection in the end. If you want proof, Paul says, look no further than the empty tomb and the Son of God who reigns today From heaven in his resurrected body. At this point, Paul turns exclusively to our future resurrection and the nature of the resurrected body. And in thinking about the resurrected body, he draws from principles from the created order. Uh, highlighting how just as seed changes its form as it grows out of the ground into the plant or the flower, Uh, so we too shall be changed as we are planted into the ground and then raised anew. Even more broadly, working from Genesis 1 and 2, and our observations from the created world itself, we can see that God is very good at making bodies that are fit for their environments. God makes fish that do great in water. Right, Birds that do great at flying through the air. And likewise, God will make bodies for his people that are fit for the kingdom of God. He does this because he has the power and the knowledge to do so. Not as a strenuous process for God, but as an instantaneous moment, an act of the will. Second, Paul applies this to the bodies of God's people. That the nature of the kingdom of God requires bodies that are of a particular kind. Bodies that are imperishable, glorious, and powerful. And God thus will give us bodies that meet these requirements. It reminds me of kind of like when you're um, when you have a, your phone and it's and you realize uh, you need to upgrade it because uh, the software you want to use on your phone will no longer upgrade. It's like when I, when, the, when when finally you're like my iPhone hasn't uh, you know upgraded on its own in a long time and and, and Apple's like it's because we're not doing it anymore. You know it's like we're going to make you buy a new one. Well, it just it's kind of like that. These software these system requirements in order to run the run the software. Well, that's how this is. And, and, and God says, "Look, I'm going to give you the system requirements. I'm going to give you the body requirements to live in the kingdom of God." Third, Paul works from what we like to call typology, which is uh, it basically that we get into that the idea that uh, God will resurrect us in this way because of the history of redemption in which we have two atoms. The first Adam fell, and we have borne the image of fallen humanity since Adam. But Jesus is the second Adam, who is not from the earth, but is from heaven. And we who are united to him by faith will in time bear his image, the image of the second Adam. Or as Paul put it in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 to 21, our citizenship, citizenship is in heaven, and we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even subject all things to himself. One day, Christ will return and make us like himself in resurrection glory. Finally, Paul turns our eyes to that moment when the resurrection will occur. We don't know when it will happen exactly in the chronology of time, but we know that it will be glorious and instantaneous. In a moment, the end of death and sin will come. And then Paul grounds our thanksgiving to God, not Simply for the future, but that we can give thanks to God today because we have secured resurrection victory over death and sin in Jesus Christ. God has given us the victory in Jesus. So, Paul has written a very long chapter to make a simple point. The people of God will be resurrected. Because it is a necessary part of the good news of the gospel. It is certain because our Savior died and He was raised. Bringing forgiveness and righteousness as well as a future resurrection. And all through union with Him by faith in the power of God. Of the Spirit. This is Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15. Now that we have reviewed that and kind of got ourselves caught up, uh, let us consider how we live in light of our resurrection in Christ. Read verse 58 again. All that in mind about the truth of Christ's resurrection, the significance of Christ's resurrection and the certain hope of our own resurrection. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now this last verse can be understood in two aspects. And that is what our future resurrection causes us to be and what it causes us to know. Because Paul Paul tells us both. So first, let's talk about what our future resurrection causes us to be. Now, right out of the gate, we need to notice how Paul shifts the tense of the verbs from the future to the present moment. He has addressed that future hope, the joy that we rightly feel the anticipation of that moment where we're going to sing the the, the taunting song over death because death will be gone, sin will be gone, and we will be just celebrating, right? He's, he's, He's talked about that already. But now he's saying, but there is something for us right now in this moment. And one scholar described this verse as Severely practical. I'm not even sure I know what that means. But I like it. And so, and, and essentially, he's saying the future certain resurrection of the people of God gives meaning and direction to our Christian life today. And so Paul says that the people of God need to be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now there's a bit of confusion, possible confusion anyway, about what Paul means here. Is Paul saying that the future resurrection enables us to, to be these things? Or that in view of the resurrection and what he has argued, we are meant to be steadfast and immovable about the future resurrection. Like, is there a more general application, or is he just specifically talking about the doctrine of future resurrection? There's a case to be made for each, but I honestly would argue it's both. That actually our confidence and hope in, uh, in our own future resurrection is bound up with our understanding of uh, our own life here on earth in light of the certain resurrection, that they are intertwined uh, and you cannot really separate them. You can, dis- you can distinguish between them, but you cannot separate them. And so the word steadfast uh, and immovable, it's interesting, one's a positive word and one's a negative word. One is because steadfast means to be firmly or solidly in place. Whereas immovable means to be incapable of uh, of movement, incapable of shaking or wavering. And it's true that in view of what Paul has said in, in this chapter, Christians ought to be unshakable when it comes to the future resurrection of the people of God. It's demonstrated and certified in Jesus Christ. But even more, the certainty of our future resurrection enables us to be steadfast and immovable in the gospel and in our lives. The truth of of the resurrection that is to come for us, that statement that I will be raised in the end from the dead, that 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 truth forms strong roots in the ground for our faith because there are strong winds and storms that blast against us from troubles within the church to attacks outside the church. I mean, Paul himself is speaking to the church in Corinth that has all kinds of problems and factions and divisions and sin inside of it. But even, but even more commonly... You know, the thing that often will bash against our faith is death itself. Maybe we're terrified of the prospect of our own death. Or maybe we lost a loved one in a sudden or hard way. There is tragedy and sudden loss, even just short of death, that can just slam against our souls The absolute certainty of the resurrection of the people of God gives us a confidence that we can stand against and outlast anything that can come against us. It is this confidence that enabled and enables the martyrs of the faith to give their very lives for the sake of Christ. I can give my life for Jesus. Why? Because I know there is a life to come. That this isn't, this isn't my, the last life I will have in the body. In fact, I will have an even greater and glorious life to come in an even greater body in the kingdom. The resurrection reminds us that whatever happens to us, we know that anything we experience is temporary momentary, transitory, and one day will give way to the glorious and joyful eternal state. We know there is a life beyond this one, a resurrection life in the kingdom of God. And so when the world comes knocking with its distractions that are meant to dull us into passivity or its threats, trying to provoke us into rage and to make our own threats against against it or to silence us. When we face affliction, suffering, or death, we can stand unmoved in the good news of grace. It doesn't mean that we won't experience doubts, inner turmoil, or difficult questions. It means that we have a certain hope That transcends those questions, that transcends those experiences, that shines a light into the darkness and frustration of suffering and affliction. And then Paul says, after saying we need to be steadfast and immovable, he says that the hope of uh, of the resurrection enables us to always be abounding in the work of the Lord. Now that word "abounding" is related to the word "abundance." It comes from a class of words that have to do with wealth and riches. The way it's used here means to uh, to be overflowing in extravagance and excess. Well, why? Well, if this life is all there is, well, then that's going to affect your priorities. That's going to affect how you live. You know, the, if, if this life is all there is, well then, uh, then you want to get everything you can right here and right now. Because this is all you got. And so, and it's odd to me how, like, especially atheists will try to play this off like it's a good thing. So they'll be like, hey. Nothing happens after you die, so don't worry about it. Just enjoy your life now. And I was like, well, okay. Even if we accept that proposition, that's a pretty bleak and awful lot in life for a whole lot of people in the world. There's no eternal justice. There's no relief. There's no change. just pain, sorrow, loss, and silence. Whereas if you know that there is a life to come, you know that you're playing the long game. That you can sacrifice because you know, not only is there another life, but there's actually a reward coming. Because it's been promised to us for the sacrifices we make here. And the work of the Lord costs time and energy. It costs money and resources that are limited in supply. It's also work that is of the Lord. That is, that is rewarded. That is, that is not in vain, he says. So that means that you know, not everything we do is the work of the Lord, especially if we sin. Uh, but in the end, our work will be tested. And we will be rewarded. And only that which is done in faith and for God's purpose will survive. And therefore, we look... For that which carries eternal significance, we weigh it. It doesn't mean we don't go on vacation or that we don't have comforts. It just means that we don't put our trust in them. They're not our top priority. You know, if someone, if someone doesn't make it to Italy in their life, it doesn't mean that, you know, they're going to go to heaven and be like, well, you failed. Like, it really just didn't hit that. You didn't make the most of your life. All right. Well, why do we do the work of the Lord? Well, because there is another life to come. There is a life full of abundance. A life of another sort that we cannot truly fathom. And thus a sacrifice today is nothing compared to what we will gain in the kingdom of God. Now, this is not to say that all Christians are by default Generous and sacrificial people and that there's no such thing as a generous atheist. All right? Far, far too often, we see, that, we see that, right? What it means, though, is that stingy, selfish Christians are betraying their own beliefs and a generous atheist cannot adequately explain why they care or why anyone else should. The knowledge of the resurrection assures us of the glory and reward to come in the future, which enables us to withstand the storms of today and to be engaged in the work that God calls us to as His church. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That is what we are to be in light of the the future resurrection of the people of God. Finally, let us consider what The future resurrection causes us to know. The future resurrection is certified for us by Jesus. That promise of that future resurrection, though, also, Paul says, certifies that our work for the Lord is not in vain. That word vain means empty or hollow. We're interesting creatures as humans we have this obsession with purpose we just we can't live without it and it doesn't matter if we believe in a god or not we desire to know that our lives matter we want meaning we want to know that our existence isn't pointless that very idea terrifies our minds but if God is not real, as some argue, if the, if the resurrection is false and the promise of resurrection is false, then our existence is in fact pointless. In all this work of the Lord business, all this gathering together for worship, giving and sacrificing for missions, doing vacation Bible schools, serving and doing Sunday schools, doing family worship uh, with our families, and, and doing all uh, so many of the other things that we do. That's just play acting. It's just pretending. And atheists will you know, hear this they'll, when they face the meaninglessness of existence uh, according to their own worldview. Many of them will just kind of shrug their shoulders and go, well, life just has the meaning you give it. Life just has the meaning you give it. The problem with that is that they don't actually believe that. Uh, Because, one, not all meanings are morally equivalent. Right? We don't... We don't say the meaning that Hitler gave to life is a morally equivalent, is that, that like, well, you know, to each his own, right? But in the atheist worldview, you cannot say that this was a meaningful, or it's not even a category of thought you can enter into. There is no meaning to anything from the atheistic worldview. If there is no grand plan, if there is no eternal destiny, then it doesn't matter what you or I say. Or what you or I do, meaning does not exist. And even if I personally assign some meaning to my own life, then that is merely an illusion. Who's pretending now? I'm just pretending. There is no meaning, but I'm going to pretend like there is. There is no meaning, but I'm going to live my life as if there's meaning. And that is where I find it ironic that Christians are the ones who, are called, who get called the ones who believe in silly myths. But there is a God. And there is a Savior who was raised from the dead. And there is a coming resurrection for the people of God, for all those who trust in Jesus. And because of that objective fact of the creation by God, and the resurrection of Christ, I know that my life here, my work for God here, is not in vain. There are no wasted sacrifices for the Lord. There are no wasted visits to the nursing home on Tuesdays for the sake of the Lord. the sacrifices that the people of God have made, the work that we have done for Christ, as as much as it is mixed with sin, the obedience to His commands, things that have come at a personal cost to us, giving ourselves to worship each week, these are not empty actions, Paul says. They are full of substance. And not because we did them well, or did them effectively on the pastor. We started 10 minutes late, right? Because God is gracious, He uses our feeble works for the glory of His name and for the advancement of His purposes. Why does your life have meaning today? How do you know that serving God today is going to matter and that is not just you're not just spinning your wheels? Because there is a day coming when you will be raised in glory. And any investment in the kingdom of God by faith will pay 30, 60, and 100 fold, as Jesus said. And so we know, because of the certainty of the resurrection of the people of God to come, that what we have done in the past, what we're doing here today, how we serve God tomorrow will ultimately result in reward and joy in the kingdom of God. And so this means that resurrection is not merely an odd, distant reality. Resurrection is the final answer to death that we experience in our bodies. And we have the promise of it in our Lord Jesus. So let us reflect upon the reality of our own coming resurrection as the people of God. Let the truth of it, the certainty of it, sink in for us into our very lives and cause us to be steadfast and immovable in the face of all the forces that are being arrayed against our souls and always to be abounding in the work of the Lord because we know that everything we do for the Lord will not be in vain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. That in Jesus we have that hope not only of eternal life, but eternal life in the fullness of the kingdom of God and resurrection. That as He is, so shall we be. As He is resurrected in glory, so so shall we be resurrected in glory. And all because of grace. All because of mercy. And so Lord, we pray that we would rejoice in the coming resurrection. That we would take comfort in the face of death. Knowing that one day we will experience the triumph over death. Yet we do have the victory now in Jesus Christ over death. And even beyond that. Lord that, that we would because of our coming resurrection. That we would be steadfast and immovable. In the face of terrible realities of a sinful world that we would always be doing the work of the Lord, investing in entrusting ourselves and our works to you, knowing that you will reward your servants, that nothing we do in the name of Christ shall come up empty. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.